<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Well, she's got a lot of things on her mind to talk about Nice in-breath there, real profession. No fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast. Episode 382. I'm recording from home. I mean, I always do. Why did I just say that? What? I'm not even paying attention to what I'm doing. I'm recording from my living room. Those of you who have the video version, and that is available on patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. Recording in my living room. The power went out in my place this podcast is being recorded due to the magic of the hotspot connection to my phone and my computer. Because you need the internet to use anything, don't you? Anyway, okay, so I'm just a little discombobbed, you guys. My power just went out an hour ago. It went out the I sat down, had all my lighting lit up, all the things I use for the video version, ready to do the podcast, and then it just all went out. And so I'm recording here in the daytime, luckily, I'm not sitting in the dark, but um, I've got to say, like, I didn't come to the microphone with a clear head. I came to the microphone going, okay. Let's hope the power comes back on. I'm sure it will. It's a little outage in my area. It's fine. But when your power goes out, it's amazing the first five minutes how stupid you are about it. And you know what? I'm going to stop saying you. Maybe you're like, no, I'm not actually. How stupid I was about it. Let's keep things in the I statement. Thank you. Yeah. 
Here's the thing. Power goes out. So I go to the little electric grid, power grid, what the fuck ever you call it, that thing in your home. You open up the little gray door. You flick the buttons left, right, left, right. Fuse box. Oh, my God. I've been trying to think of that word for five minutes. Fuse box. But the fuse box is in a dark corner. So what do I do? I turn on the light that's lit by electricity in that corner so that I can see the buttons on the fuse box so that I can flip the buttons to see if the power will go back on. And I'm like, huh? Why didn't this light work? Oh, right. I'm standing here because the power's not on. That's why the light doesn't work. Okay. I could go get a flashlight. I have one. I have I have a whole kit, people. I've got like a pandemic kit. I've got an earthquake kit. I've got stuff in my trunk. I'm ready. But I'm too lazy to walk into the kitchen to get a flashlight out of the drawer. So I just squint and I flick all the buttons and it's not a fuse in my place. It is condo wide. It is out of my control. So then I think, well, I'm going to go downstairs, see what the doorman has to say about this. But first, let me pee. Well, my bathroom doesn't have natural light. There's no window in my bathroom. So I flick the light on so that I can pee, I guess. I guess I, I guess, I guess I've never really taken a look at the fact that I automatically flip a light on to pee. Now I can find the toilet. It's not pitch black. I see it there but I guess I put a light on to pee. Okay. So I put the light on. It doesn't go on. And I think, what's going on? Oh, right. The power went out. And that's why I'm peeing because I want to empty my bladder before I go downstairs and maybe spend some time down there. I mean, you would think it's just constant. And then I think, oh, well, maybe I'll just go somewhere. I'll change up my day. And then I think I can't because the parking garage is on an electric grid. And so now I can't even get my car out. So just every little thing, every minute of my life, Every second of my life is connected to being completely dependent on electricity. Now, the more spiritual moments in my life, when I've felt like, you know, when I when my explanation of God has to do with more of an intelligence to the universe, or this uh, one of my favorite quotes by the poet Rumi is, "Live as if the universe is rigged in your favor." And I think to myself, you don't actually need to say to myself, Jen, I think is always to yourself, you dumb, dumb, dumb. Anyway, so I think often, or when people ask me, can you define the tenant of your spiritual beliefs? I say, I don't know, maybe some connection to the universe, some flow is always there. It's like electricity. You just have to plug into it. Think of how many things we rely on every day without thinking about it. We just put our faith in it, but we don't do that when it comes to, I don't know, surrendering to an all-knowing universe in, in some aspects of life in terms of when we can't let a thought, a thought rotation go, or we obsess over something, or we worry, you know, that kind of thing. Well, now here's the great overlord electricity, and I can't connect to it. So if I disproved all my theories, no. Because electricity is still there. I just can't plug into it right now. And that's how I feel when I'm at a spiritual bottom. I know it's there. I can't tell it's there. No, I'm not high. This is just how I am anyway. <laughs> anyway, no fun. The Jen Kirkman podcast. What is this podcast? 
Well, I'm Jen Kirkman. I'm a comedian. You may have seen my Netflix specials, Just Keep Living, or I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. I have written two books. One is about not wanting kids. One is about getting divorced, turning 40, traveling, dating, blah, blah, blah. I, I would actually encourage you to buy them. The more you buy those books, I don't actually see the money uh, in terms of uh, there would have to be so many millions sold for me to see residuals. But book sales do help the possibility that I would someday get a third book deal. I have tried to get a third book deal. I have given two elaborate pitches to my agent who has then pitched them to every publishing house ever. And they have said her book sales need to be bigger for us to give her a third book deal. So there you go. Everything you do helps. Subscribe here, give it five stars, write a good review, buy a book brand new. Everything you do I know a lot of times people want to put money directly in my pocket. The only way to do that is join the Patreon. But in terms of, you know, buying a book, buying the audio version with bonus material version of my album, Just Keep Living, all of this is in the show notes. That is what just keep making me popular with those things and things will keep rolling here. All right, great. Thanks for being here. This podcast, I didn't describe what it was. I just started selling you stuff. Is that what this podcast is? Some kind of infomercial? At the end of the day, isn't that what all podcasts are? It's just a one-hour commercial to make you like someone even more so that when they come to your town, you go see them buy tickets. That's a dirty secret. No, uh, I will tell you that the... um, What am I telling you? I'll tell you what this podcast is. Are you fucking kidding me? Is this really an episode? What if this is someone's first episode? (laughs) I am Jen Kirkman. I am a comedian, but this podcast is not a perfected comedy special where every word has been perfected. Oh, no. And it is not a book where there's been an editor and drafts and drafts have been written. Oh, no. This is off the top of my head for better or worse. Oh, my God. She just thought that up. That's genius. Oh, my God. What did she just say? I'm totally offended. And now I can't take it back. And it's out there. That's right. This is where I just come to be the real me, unfiltered, unedited, thoughts going on in my head about what's going on in my life, in the world, whatever. Me talking to you, a conversation with a good friend where you say nothing. Or if you're shy and you like that, you don't have to say anything. I'm here. I'm here while you're doing your dishes. I see you, Susan, cutting up that broccoli. If you're driving and you need a friend, I'm here for you. Okay, great. So let's talk about this week. So I haven't been living that much. Uh, You know, we're still in a pandemic. I've been working in terms of uh, the work I put into this podcast. I have another podcast that's going to be coming out in August called Anxiety Bites. And it is a real profesh podcast. I will be interviewing people. I will be talking to experts about anxiety. I will be the friendly, funny friend who helps normalize that we all have anxiety, whether or not we have an official anxiety disorder. Everything you feel, yes, that's anxiety. Yes, that, oh, that too, that's anxiety. Yeah, oh, you have it. You've always had it. It's not a big deal. We all do. Let's have a sense of humor while we take a look at it. Let's normalize anxiety. So I'm very excited to bring that podcast to the world. Very nervous about it because it is a real podcast. And you go, Jen, what's the difference between this podcast? It's a little more, I don't know, profesh. There are consequences if it doesn't go. Okay. Uh, So 
I've been busy and I thought, you know what? I don't have anything to talk about. I mean, thank God my power just went out. That gave me something. That's, that's the most action I've seen in two weeks. So I said, let's do a listener email episode. You tell me what you want me to talk about, or you just tell me something and I'll read it. And I'm sure your life might be more interesting than mine right now. So if you're someone that doesn't like a listener email episode, don't worry. It's not just going to be me reading. Come on, I'm a goddamn professional. I'm going to be jumping off into monologues and stories based on prompts from the listeners. Now, where did I get that idea that people don't like listener email episodes? I don't know. I think it's because I don't really like them or live episodes of podcasts. By the way, I have a hot life tip for you guys. It's my new revolutionary idea. This is not an ad. I know it's like gearing up to sound like an ad. It's something I did the other day and I thought, has anyone ever done this before? A, I'm sure they have. That's the sad thing about a good idea sometimes, right? You're like, oh, it's a good idea because everyone's thought it already. You notice that in the the business I'm in, if you're pitching a TV show and you're like, okay, it's two brothers, but get this. It turns out that one of them is actually a cousin and they both love the same woman and they run a, a, a bait shop in a town, hold, that doesn't have any natural water. I know. And they're like, that's the fourth pitch we've heard this week about the two brothers that aren't really brothers that run a bait shop in a town that doesn't have any natural water. And you're like, what? My new revolutionary idea for those of you who like to make lists, but sometimes see that things carry over from today's to-do list to tomorrow's to-do list. And you're like, am I ever going to do this thing? I don't want to do it. I said to myself, I'm going to make a, I don't want to-do list. And so I do that every day. I write things I don't want to do today. And they're not, you know, like there's someone I have to return a phone call to. It's like a distant friend, you know, that's on my I don't want to do list. I have a um, question I need to ask, you know, my building manager. I want to see, even though I'm renting, if I can uh, do some work on, if I can get new tiles installed on the kitchen floor. You know, it's, it's like weird things like that, where it's like none of this needs to be done immediately. It's not a deadline with work. It's not uh, health related. It's just, it's just, uh, if I have 10 minutes, can I do this thing? Or maybe something that's making me a little nervous that I don't want to do, you know? Or just like, I don't know, at some point I'm going to have to reorganize this folder on my desktop on my computer. So I just put it things I don't want to do list. And just because our minds are so tricky, you know, our minds can be like toddlers where we we just want to be contrarian sometimes and do the opposite. I have gotten things done by putting them on my things I don't want to do list. And so I have this to-do list notebook and the things I don't want to do list, I put them on, I have some sticky notes and I have some cute pink ones and I put them on sticky notes. So I said, things I don't want to do and I just put it on the sticky notes and I stick those on, you know, in the to-do list. And I swear to God, I've I've knocked like two things off there that would not have been knocked off. I don't think. Because my mind goes, why don't I want to do this? Just do it. And then you could throw the sticky away or recycle it. She's a monster with her advocating of throwing away paper. I'm offended and I'm writing into the podcast. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. 
Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so listener emails, hi, Jen. Oh, this is, I was just talking about writing. Jen, what would be your dream writing job? Have you ever thought about working as a showrunner? If you've ever considered it or any other job behind the scenes, would you want it to be for something you've written or developed? Or are there other people whose work and projects you would enjoy being involved in? Love the pod and your Patreon is a delight, Lori. Oh, many questions here. My dream writing job, but let's just put this all on paper first and foremost. I have to be very honest. My Writers Guild, the WGA, is my union, the Writers Guild, the WGA, is fucking brilliant. The health insurance is mwah. It is, I could just go to a surgeon and go, cut off my fingers, because I say so. And they do it, and I don't need a referral, and it's very low cost, if, if not nothing sometimes. And, you know, you earn the insurance as you keep earning. So you make this much a year, that gives you another year insurance. You know how it goes. So I have to, if I want to keep this insurance, keep being employed as a writer. So that being said, my dream world is that I don't even, quote, have to be a writer at all because that involves desks and deadlines and other people and office politics and offers refrigerators. I mean, it is the same at the end of the day as anything else. And when you work a writing job, you think to yourself, well, Jen, you say it's the same as everything else, but there's no way it's as boring and corporate as my job here at the bank. And I tell you, maybe, maybe not, but it is definitely not this freewheeling, you know, uh, it's a little more freewheeling. I, I get it. There's a less probably bad jokes going around or like, you know, bad jokes that people... If The worst thing about any office job that's not in show business is enduring the bad jokes that your boss or your coworker makes. And sometimes you can't say that sucked or just say nothing. And they don't usually have the self-awareness to go, that sucks. In my line of work as a comedy writer on a TV show, when I'm employed, is uh, you sit there and you say, you preface, <clears throat> you go, bad pitch, but I have to get this out. What if she does this? And everyone goes, actually, that's not a bad pitch. Or they go, yeah, that's bad. And we make fun of each other for our bad jokes that we throw out. And there's self-awareness and whatever. So I guess you're right. In that sense, like a whole big mess of shit I hate about office jobs, that is taken off the plate when you write in TV shows. But in general, if you're more of this freewheeling, free spirit like I am, a, a writing job is a job. A job is a job is a job. My ultimate dream would be to be a very f famous, and, and I don't mean famous because I want fame, but let's just say a very, um, how about this? A comedian whose shows are so highly attended that I make fistfuls of millions a year. I'm talking tens of millions a year. That way, I don't have to do anything else. And I get to just say what I want and be on stage, you know what I mean? Or be a podcaster at the level of Joe Rogan making $100 million on Spotify. Like, that's my dream jobs, those two things. Now, those two things have not happened, and I'm not complaining. It's like comparing yourself to an astronaut. Like, why haven't I done that? I've only flown Delta from Palm Beach to um, Houston. Like, yes, I have been in the air. I've been in some rarefied air, but I'm not out of the atmosphere. So I also need other jobs. 
So that being said, I don't really sit around and wonder what my dream writing job is because in general, doing anything but being in that atmospheric, you know, no one else out here but me being the world's most famous performer, that's like, that's what I dream of when I dream. I don't have a dream about my secondary job. I will say this though, I'm not picky if that makes sense. So let me put it to you this way. I enjoy being part of a group. I enjoy not having the pressure all on me. What I've really discovered about myself in the past three years. Now, this might not be who I've always been, but this is who I am in this age bracket. 45 plus. Is I love being part of a team. I love being part of a writer's room. I love being an assist. I don't need to be in charge of it. I don't need it to be my idea. So writing on a TV show for me, I, to be quite honest, have my dream writing job at The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Now, it is a streaming job. It is uh, eight episodes um, a season. So it is very, very part-time. I do not work 40 hours a week. I do not work every day. I do not work 40 weeks uh, 40 weeks a year because there aren't 40 weeks a year. You know, it's more like it's like a 20 week a year job. The the stuff I've been doing lately has been very very part time. So nobody cancel the Patreon. Oh god, please. <laughs> so my point is that is my dream job because I'll tell you a bunch of reasons. It's about subjects that I'm interested in, which is New York City, comedy, being a woman in this comedy business, lots of Lenny Bruce stuff in there, family, uh, divorce. Um, you know, uh, I, 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 the time period it's about is something that I just am used to and know a lot about from growing up with older parents. And I love, uh, shows that are shot in New York and filmed and produced in New York because there's a lot less, I don't know how to put it, but, um, it just gives me more of a down to earth, real feeling even though it's very uh, beautifully shot and very glamorous and wonderful, but I'm just saying like the, uh, I don't know, it just, everything is more down to earth. So I'm there. Uh, the bigger dream would be like, oh, I'm there, you know, somehow. Now, I also, um, at the time, I had my dream job at Chelsea lately because I was working with a bunch of stand-up comedians. We wrote jokes. They were dead by the end of the day because they were filmed and on TV. And then we went back the next day with something fresh. That's that's how I felt then. At, at one point, I took a year off to go write on a sitcom and I did not enjoy it because I was used to of a more urgent every day you come into work and everything you're writing is going to be filmed in four hours. Like that kind of adrenaline was really appealing to me. These days, I don't... These days, it's not that the adrenaline doesn't appeal to me, but for some reason... I don't desire to write on a late night show and just sit there coming up with jokes. It seems very boring to me. I I like character story and dialogue more. So it changes. So right now I'd say like of all the shows that are on the air, you know, it's like different. It's like I can love a show but not want to write on it. Like I'm obsessed with Barry. I love that show. I don't want to write on it. I don't want to be in a room like thinking about shooting people and murder all day long, you know. Um, I guess if they made an English version of call my agent, that show I always talk about on Netflix. I I think that would be a dream job. But the thing is, the job never for me is a dream because it 
correlates with how much I like a certain show. So to me, a dream writing job has aspects that really don't have anything to do with what the show is. A dream writing job is honestly like more practical and financial. One that goes 40 weeks a year. One that is a show in syndication, which means you get crazy ass residuals and, and, uh, you know, like the best paying jobs are like a network sitcom, like Simpsons, Two and a Half Men, you know, they, and they're getting crazy residuals. Everyone's getting rich. You know, streaming, you're not getting residuals, you're not getting rich. So it's sort of like there is no dream because it's just sort of like that. that's what that's what it is. In terms of showrunner, and of course, I've I've had to think about it because it's literally like it's part of my, I mean, it's the business I'm in as a comedian as well. Like everything has been considered. You know, I would have to be in like a coma if I, you know what I mean? Like, so uh the four time the five times that I have sold my own show idea to a network where they pay me to write a pilot script and then from there they decide if they're going to film the pilot and 70% of scripts that are purchased from a network are not filmed so some people make a living off of selling a script every year and each year their rate goes up now mine weirdly didn't that's a whole other discussion about echelons in this business and being a woman and blah, blah, blah. But you can make a good living as someone who's never gotten one show on the air. You can make literally millions over your lifetime as someone who has written tons of scripts for networks that never get picked up. So my point is, in those days when I had sold things to networks, you have to do the contract as though it's going to get picked up. You have to kind of things in place. So three of those shows, I would have been the showrunner if it had gotten picked up and the star and the creator. And the, and I don't really think I knew what showrunner was. I mean, I did, but I wasn't thinking about it. I was like, oh yeah, I'll just be the showrunner. The last two things I sold, I specifically partnered. I pitched the, the idea to a studio. I said, can you partner me with a showrunner? Now they partner me with a showrunner. The showrunner and I co-created the shows. Um, sold it. I would write the script. The showrunner would give notes. And so if it got picked up, this person runs the show. Because a showrunner is a very, it is your life. So you have to be in love with this business the way that I'm in love enough to travel for a comedy. You know, like you are, it is just like your life. It is 24-7. You, every decision comes through you. And, you know, you have to know about everything. If you're hiring the person to do the budget, you have to know why they're the best person to do that budget because you have to have some idea of how to budget a show. And you have to, I mean, it is, there's people go to school for this, you know, and people learn and they come up the ladder. So a lot of times, you know, someone like me, a comedian who kind of skirts the system and sells a show, um, you know, usually what happens in the writing world is you're like a baby writer when you're 21 and out of college or you're a writer's assistant and then you are a writer's assistant in a writer's room and then you get plucked by the showrunner if the showrunner likes you and they make you a first year writer next season and then you keep working your way up and then, you know, 10, 12 years later, you're at the highest echelon of writing and then you start pitching your own shows and then you can become a showrunner. But you've been on set watching someone do that for 12 years at least, at least 12 years. With comedians, it's like people throw money at us because we also do have good ideas and we already come with a built-in audience and we're performers. And we're like, I have an idea. I'm a tap dancer who sells meat. And they're like, great. 
here's some money, write the script. If the show goes, you're the showrunner. And it's like, you are set up to fail if you don't know anything about showrunning. And so that's why I started to realize um, more that is a job I actually don't want to do. So if I sold my own show where I was the star, I would uh, just simply want to star in it and maybe have final, you know, like I would be some kind of higher up thing where I get to uh, weigh in on the scripts and say, no, we're not doing that, whatever. The other thing is, um, if I'm pitching a show where I'm not going to be in it, I still don't want to be the showrunner, but I might want to be, um, I'd obviously have to be the head writer. And that to me, again, all of that's very scary. And all of that is like that. So upper level stuff, I don't want to, you know, every every week, it's just like constant, like everyone's agent does this. I get sent something. Okay, so there is a producer out there who's looking for a writer showrunner. They want to do... Um, a show about a 12-year-old um, Wiccan vegan feminist girl who's a superhero at her school. Does that resonate with you? And if it does resonate with me, then I have to write this script on spec and I have to assume the role of showrunner and all that stuff. And if we sell it, I'm running this show. Now, I don't want to do that for ideas that are not my baby because if I don't care about something, then I really don't, you know, it's like, Everything is always driven by me, 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 me. Like, is this my idea? Do I want to do it? And if it's not my idea, that's why I say I'm a really good team member as a writing job. Like, I'm not in the room trying to grab power. I'm just like psyched to be part of the team. Give me my great paycheck. Give me that health insurance. I go home happy and I don't have to worry about it when I walk out that door. I don't have to worry about it. That's that's a great feeling for someone like me. Like I don't want to eat, breathe and sleep anything, you know. Except oxygen and food. So there you go. Um love the pod and your Patreon is a delight. Thank you, Lori, everyone. Let's talk about the Patreon. Let's talk about the fact that this is literally my job. My goal is 1,000 Patreon subscribers before my birthday on August 28th. We are at 630 right now. Can I do it? I don't know. It took a year to get 630. Can I get 400 more? Can I get 370 more? I don't know. But today is the day you're finally going to sign up. For $5 a month, you get four videos a month, one a week. There are bonus things in the video version that you will not hear on this very thing you're listening to. It is ad-free. There are bonus audio episodes for every level. And I throw in some stand-up stuff that I've recorded on the road that has not come out in any specials. And that is the other thing. There will be no new comedy special from me this year. I, this is, I am a fully self-supporting artist these days. And so uh, it would really help me. Uh, 2021, 2020, an abundant year, 2021 shaping up to be a little leaner. I'm always like off a year. Every, everyone, like no one was working during the pandemic and I kind of was. And now I'm like, um, can you join my Patreon? It's patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. I promise that you will love it. And it is fun. I don't do anything that I don't at least think I would want to join. So there you go. Oh my God. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, 
propels us forward and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Jen, I have some questions for your all-listener questions podcast. Ah, what are your favorite bands when you were in high school or college? Who are your favorite Boston bands? Thank you. I didn't put who wrote this. I'm going to say one thing, though, that I did notice. All the men asked me questions about music, and all the women have these, like, long letters, like, deep questions. It's just very interesting, I'm just saying. Um, now, if you buy my book, I can barely take care of myself. Oh, I tell fun stories about the time I saw the Cure in concert, and I threw a book at Robert Smith. I think it's, you know, I don't remember where I wrote anything, but if you have all my other work, you, you might know some of this already. In high school, now let me say, let me say this: music was always a big part of my life when I was growing up. It's less so now. Does that make sense? I think if I had kids, I'd be a little more obsessed with um, music. If that makes sense, I think I would be constantly forcing music on them uh, so that they could grow up the same way I did. But since I'm already a put together person that was pieced together by all the music that made me, I feel made. I'm not actually actively seeking new stuff out, and I don't really ever do anything anyone recommends. So it's just a weird thing of mine. So in high school, my favorite bands were The Cure and The Smiths and Nirvana and Public Enemy and Hole and uh, I liked Ska. I liked The Specials. Now, a lot of those bands were, you know, not together anymore by the time I heard of them. So I'm in high school, 88 to 92. I had a very eclectic taste. I also loved a lot of the stuff that... um, you know, I make these um, mixes and they're on my Spotify and I can actually link in the show notes to some of the mixes I make. I love this kind of like French music, like loungy stuff. I love oldies. I love doo-wop. I love all that kind of stuff. I love classical. So like I'm in high school and I'm also taking, you know, classical music lessons. I also loved Madonna. I mean, she was a big part of my life, you know, in high school as well. And all still is. I love her music. You know, so it's like I had like punk rock tastes. I had pop tastes. I loved Prince. Um, I loved, uh, you know, soul funk. You know, I'd listen to Sly and the Family Stone. I'd listen to D Light, which is a new was a newer band. But I'm just all these names are popping into my head. And then growing up, you know, I was listening to the Beatles. By the time I was five, I had um, my sister's Led Zeppelin albums. Like I loved Zeppelin and the Who. I still do. I could listen to them all day long. I listened to that in high school a lot. So just a lot of that, you know. And for me, it's not even often about that I'm into a certain band or a certain album. It might be that I'm into a certain genre of music and I might know one song from each thing. And that's a lot about like what my Spotify mixes are now. So these days, I'm kind of into making my little loungy Spotify mixes. They're like good music for like if you're at home having a cocktail party for one because it's a pandemic or you want some like fun music to clean your house to. And it's just sort of background music that you're not really thinking about. And so anyway, I'm going to put the link in the show notes to one of these mixes. And uh, there you go. So that 
that's it. My favorite Boston bands. Now, I never thought about being from Boston. You know, when you grow up living somewhere, like I don't think about the fact that I'm from there because I'm never really going anywhere else, if that makes sense. Like I didn't have any Boston pride per se. I didn't go out to see music that was local. Like I wasn't like exploring a scene, nothing like that. So I didn't know who was from Boston. I liked the song More Than a Feeling by the band Boston. Don't like anything else by them. Aerosmith. I mean, we love, I mean, come on. Aerosmith is a fucking classic. Um, I don't love all their music. I probably only like 30% of their songs, whereas Zeppelin, I like 100%. So, you know, I'd say Aerosmith, but for lack of like, I mean, I know there's other bands. Like I know there was, um, you know, as I got into college, I realized there was more of like a little punk scene and whatever. And, you know, I get all that, but I just, I didn't really care. I wasn't like hot on Boston, if that makes sense. Um, I wasn't overly appreciative of the place. I certainly hate all those like mighty, mighty Boston's like look, look, ugh, hate that music. Sorry if any of them are listening. Okay, there you go. Jen, lesbians and makeup. Jen, you asked for suggestions for a podcast. Uh, it seems like people have their own ideas of what sexuality is, and it seems like people are put into rigid categories. I've been called a lesbian. If I sometimes don't fit the strict category of femininity, like if I stick up for myself or more often if I'm sticking up for someone who's not there, or if I don't have my makeup on that day or I didn't smile enough or be quiet enough. It's meant as an insult, even though that doesn't make sense. It's not insulting to be in- confused for a lesbian. It's insulting when someone is noticeably trying to hurt my feelings by saying something they think I'd hate. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who is saying this to you or what, but, you know, I guess lesbian has become synonymous with um, masculine traded woman, right? Or, uh, you know, woman who doesn't act like a delicate flower. I mean, it's just like, I feel like I'm in the 70s right now reading this email. Not not anything that's your fault, but this, any, this attitude. I mean, like, everyone listening gets how ridiculous all of that is. And it makes me want to do that stuff more. Like if I lived in a world where people thought women shouldn't do that, I would do it twice as much. And speaking of leading back to the last question about bands, like that's why in college I was super into like all those riot girl feminist bands. And I would like cut all my hair off or just try to look dumpy, like just to piss off guys. <laughs> just like walking down the street and things so baggy that you know you can't be objectified was like such a win. I mean, it's so sad though, because it's not always what I wanted to do. Um. My friends and I are all on different parts of the sexuality spectrum. We're all kind of tired of being represented poorly in TV and movies. Usually the gay boy is flamboyant, the lesbian is butch, and the girly girls are the rest. I'm not a lesbian just because I'm not I'm not a lesbian just because I'm not an American princess who did my YouTube makeup tutorial that day. I'm a massage therapist, chiropractic assistant. I usually don't wear makeup. One time I worked on a new patient. He came back the next time and I happened to be wearing some makeup. He didn't recognize me because he talked about how the last massage therapist seemed like a grumpy lesbian. Oh my God. He said the massage was fine, even similar to last time, but it was nice to see the doctor replaced the grumpy lesbian. In his case, he wasn't trying to be insulting, but dude. Anyways, I really like your specials and I'll do Patreon until the next one. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Zoe. Um, I just, it's like, even if that wasn't you, even if you hadn't masqueraded as that grumpy, no makeup lesbian, um, that's insulting. He's insulting women. Like, I can't, it is, I, can you, 
can you fire that guy from being a patient? I mean, it's just mind blowing. It's just mind blowing. And, and you know, it's funny, like I, I remember going through something similar in, in my life and, and it's, it's that, you know, I think the fact that gender and sexuality is now looked at as the spectrum really helps cis straight women like me in the sense that it it gives us all a little more freedom. I've I've had I've had to explain things to people that they just didn't get and I've had arguments even with you know people in my generation or or stuff like that where I just don't like having big boobs and I don't think I do. They're they're pretty medium but if I gain weight, my boobs get bigger, you know? Um, And that's like one of the things about weight gain that I hate. Like, it's not a look I like. I like a flat chested look. I just, you know, I grew up most of my life with one. It was what I was used to. Um, I don't think it's some self-hating thing. It's not an eating disorder. In my day, it used to be called an eating disorder. It used to be called hating being a woman, a fear of turning into our mothers. And honestly, like, it was always like something was wrong with me, like developmentally or psychologically. And I get that like that can be a symptom, but I don't have any of the other symptoms that would point to that being the thing. The only thing is like, I just don't like how boobs look like aesthetically on me. It's like, I don't actually find it sexy. It's like, no, I don't care what men think either. If they're like, honey, like you gained 20 pounds. This, that works for me because your boobs look bigger. I'm just like, yeah, no, I don't care what you think. And no, like for me, it's all about fashion. And then the people go, oh, eating disorder. I go, nope. Not saying looking like you're dying anorexic. I just, I like a sort of androgynous look. And that's about as far as it goes. I'm not uh, fluid. I'm not trans. I'm not this. But it's just like my little version of something that's a little bit off the binary is like, I like a kind of androgynous look. And I think a lot of children of the 70s, Gen X are kind of like this. And and then the ones that aren't are really not. But um, so in my Netflix special, I'm going to die alone. I think I've talked about this. I kind of taped my boobs apart so that there wouldn't be a cleavage line and kind of made sure they were kind of pressed down and wore this um, long, this shirt that had a um, deep, deep V kind of cut to it. Not deep V, but like open. And I wanted it to look, and I had a big kind of medallion necklace, and I wanted it to look like the guys on the Bee Gees album. I didn't want it to look like a woman with cleavage. I don't like that look. And I actually did a really great interview about it. I don't mean I was great. I just mean the interview was great because it was only about the fashion choices in my special, which was really fun to talk about. And I talked about how I was going for this androgynous top look. And people were like, what are you talking about? And so many people wrote to me like, where are your boobs in that special? And like, you should have more cleavage. And I'm just like, no, but that's not what I'm going for here. And uh, I know it's not the same as what you're talking about, but I just think there's a spectrum of what people like to look like. And um, that's not what you're talking about. But I also just hate being defined by anything. It's like, sometimes I wear makeup, sometimes I don't. And I honestly think if I were a guy, I would be the same way. Like, I don't find that the makeup I'm wearing is a choice I'm making because it's been indoctrinated to me as a woman. I find it to be very much a choice I'm making because I like to do certain things to my face because I think it's fun. And I feel like if I were a man, I'd be one of those guys that like wears nail polish, you know? And everyone I've known has always fought me on this and been like, no, it's society. And I'm like, I- I'm sure some of it is, but I also know myself. And you just kind of know yourself on a soul level where you're like, this isn't the woman in me that the patriarchy has told she needs to wear makeup because I-, I know that's not why I'm doing it because I don't 
relish in the positive responses I might get for it. And I don't care if I don't do it. I don't care what anyone thinks. And so to me, it's like, no, that's not why. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the language yet for what I'm saying because I actually don't think we're there yet. So once someone invents that language, I can talk about it more. Jen, you can say my name. Now, she said I could say her name. I'm not going to because this is a controversial email and she might change her mind. And someone might figure out who she is and there could be some backlash. Jen, I feel like you're the only person who I can tell this to, but I don't like dogs either. LOL. Okay, so I've talked about how I'm just not a dog person. I don't hate dogs. Love to all the dogs. But dog culture is not my thing. My friends with dogs. I can't go on hikes. I can't go on walks with anyone without 50 dogs coming. I got it. I'm fine with it. I like my friends' dogs because I like my friends. Um, I just don't want a dog of my own. And it would be like a really, really big deal um, unless I lived in like a mansion with a huge yard uh, to live with someone who had a dog. And I've lived with someone who had a dog before and I really didn't like it. Okay, Jen, my whole life I thought I loved dogs until I moved in with my boyfriend who has a large dog. I hate how it smells. I hate how the entire apartment smells like dog, even though we keep it really clean and vacuum every day and light candles and we keep the dog clean. It just smells like dog no matter what I try. I hate picking up its massive poops. Ugh. I hate being licked and jumped on. Me too. I hate being stared at while I eat. Me too. But what I absolutely hate is when it gets in bed with us. Oh, me too. People let their dogs in their bed as though it's not walking around outside, stepping in dirt and who knows what else, and then get their nasty paws all over my bed. I can't stand it. We might as well wear our shoes in bed too. My boyfriend adores his dog. And as much as I dislike the dog, I do care for him. And I would never ask my boyfriend to get rid of him. I just needed to get this off my chest. Thanks. Name redacted. I'll call you Amy. Thanks, Amy. I'm not saying your name. I just think this is too controversial. People can make fun of cats all the goddamn day long. Cat people just have to take it. But say one thing about how dogs just aren't for you. And then there's dog Twitter. You didn't know you didn't need a picture of a puppy today. I didn't actually. I didn't. Stop it. Makes me feel like something's wrong with me. I don't like boobs and I don't like dogs. Okay? And I don't want dogs jumping on my boobs when they're sore from PMS. Jen. First of all, let's do some shout outs here. I mean, thank you to everyone who is a Patreon subscriber. And uh, if you want a shout out, there is a place on the Patreon to let me know. These are shout outs that people have said I could give. So these are Patreon subscribers for this week. Sally George, you're the best. Thank you. Jacqueline David, you fucking rock. Or is it Jacqueline Davy? Renee Rufa. You're the fucking coolest thing I've ever met. Bill Mullen, thank you for being you. Being you is just perfect. Elizabeth, who calls herself Biddy. Biddy, you're just too damn cute. Michelle Spritzer, I bet people annoy you all the time about your name. And I'm not going to do it because I respect you too much. Thank you. Nathan, he doesn't have a last name. It just comes up as someone. Nathan, you're a real mystery, aren't you? Thank you. Natalie Boyett. 
I love you. You rock. And I'm, unless I'm saying your name wrong, Natalie Boyer. I love you. You rock. You're always in my heart. Joanna DeRose. I was going to say some kind of flower pun, but I'm not going to put you through that. I'm just going to say thank you. I respect you. You're a good person. Robbie Binion. You're also a good person. You know that? I don't care what kind of criminal record you have. I know you got a good heart. Thank you. All right. Those are my shout outs for this week. Let's get back to the emails. Hi, Jen. Listening you just to... Honey, she's doing an all-listener email episode, but she has trouble reading. That's why I listen to Joe Rogan only. Hi, Jen. Listening to you describe the Twitter author who made an inappropriate comment, then stumble over himself claiming to be a feminist made me want to puke. I talked about that, I think, last week or two weeks ago on the podcast that this uh, guy who said he's a feminist slid into my DMs and wrote a joke to me about how my dentist might grope me and sexually assault me. And it was weird because I don't know him and we've never communicated. And then I blocked him. And then he DM'd me on Instagram to tell me that he's a feminist because his wife had been murdered and he has daughters. Okay. Anyway, so this woman says, and it reminded me, though not the same situation, of a male customer calling my place of work to ask me out. I was caught off guard and slipped into a role I would normally cringe at and completely rip apart. He said he wanted to ask me out in person, but he didn't want to embarrass me. I told him he was barking up the wrong tree, and he said, oh, you're with someone? The truth is, I'm a lesbian, as well as in a relationship, but it wouldn't matter if I was straight or with someone. The answer would be fuck no. But I simply said, yeah, I am. And here comes the cringeworthy part. I thanked him and told him I was flattered. I was so worried about being rude or hurting his feelings. And I hate that I felt the need to do that. After I hung up, I thought more about the audacity of calling my work for something like that, saying he didn't want to embarrass me. And also assuming the only reason I wouldn't want him is because I must be taken. Men, stop it. He still comes in and I have no choice but to interact with him because it's a small cafe with only myself and the two owners working there. He has a smug look on his face every time I want to slap it off him. Thank you for continuing to call men out in all the best ways possible. I know you get advances like this and worse all the time, and I think I would spontaneously combust. All the best always, Michelle. Michelle, you would. It's every goddamn day, and none of it is ever a compliment. Whether it's intended as one, and not one. I'm almost glad this guy doesn't know you're a lesbian because I know someone like him would think, well, if she liked men, she'd be into me or worse that he might be able to change you, you know, or worse, have a threesome with you and your partner. And so uh, I hate it. I, I revert to those roles, too. But you know what? Those roles we revert to are a fucking safety default. It's like our own um, like lock that someone would have on a gun or something like we have a fucking safety thing that we just revert to because it's demure, it's polite, and it will keep some it will keep from angering someone who could kill us. We literally don't know if someone who's asking us out will kill us if we say no. Literally, I'm talking we think about that. And you don't start by going, I know you gals worry about being murdered. I'm not a murderer. That's what a murderer says. You think a murderer goes, hi, I'm a murderer? That's not how it works. In fact, people who do that kind of stuff get off on hiding who they are. We've, kn- we've known all this in our DNA since we were little girls. So it's just, and I hate that he called. It's like he didn't want to embarrass himself, embarrass you. I mean, I know you know that. I hate all of it, Michelle. I hate all of it. I hope sometime you can, I don't know, give him a caffeinated when he wants a decaf and vice versa. 
Any other questions here? Any other questions? Jen, I just wanted to... Oh, sorry. Jen, I always hear you talking about music, especially when you break into song. What's one of the best concerts you've ever been to? Well, I did answer this on the all Patreon listener email episode this year. So patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman, 10 bucks a month for um, the one hour bonus every month. Barring that, what are your top three favorite albums or songs at the moment? You don't have to address both questions. <laughs> People tell me what I can do or either, as I'm sure you'll get plenty of topics from everyone. I dig the podcast. I'm looking forward to this one with all the listener topics. Thanks, Will. Um, I don't have a favorite album at the moment. I think my favorite album of quarantine that came out was Fiona Apple's um, latest album, and I was playing it a lot. Um, and I talked about it, and I, now I can't remember the name. Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Um, songs, again, I already kind of answered this, right, with the Spotify thing. So I think it's just like I don't listen to a ton of music right now because I'm not driving a lot. And I honestly don't totally love the speaker set up at my home. I mean, it's loud enough. It's fine. It just, I don't know. There's something, there's something weird in me where like music, once it became all digital, became sort of something I only do when I'm driving. Like it's still just not natural to me. It's not a judgment where I, I don't think of music to put on in my little digital hand, in my phone or in my computer. I, I end up listening to talking like podcasts, but, um, so there's that. And then uh, I do have a record player, but there's a thing missing that's going to help it connect better to the speakers. So I do actually like to listen to records sometimes, but um, I'm not really into me. I'm not like in a music phase right now, which sucks, but I, I do. Um, I did like listen to a couple of. I listened when, when the Grammys came out and people were talking about that stuff, I listened to a couple um Billie Eilish songs I'd never heard. I kind of liked it. Oh, because I was watching her documentary. So there you go. But it's like, you know, it's like Kamala Harris was talking about Bootsy Collins a lot. I was like, I feel like I don't know enough of his stuff. So like that was something I was listening to a lot this year too. Um, best concerts I've ever been to. You know, for me, concerts don't really have anything to do with if I loved them Uh like, was it the best time that band ever performed? Was it about the music? I mean, for me, the best concert I probably ever went to was like the first concert I ever went to when I was 14. My sister took me to see The Cure and I just never seen, I mean, if you've never seen a band you love that's from England, that you're breathing the same era, it's like, that's like shockingly intense. Like you can't believe they're there in front of you, even if you're far away. And I was in this big, you know, outdoor stadium thing, not a stadium, but big outdoor music center you know, thousands of seats. And I just couldn't believe the music carried the way it did in it, that I, that you could feel the, the bass reverberate in your solar plexus. Like I, the music was like vibrating through me. Like if you went to a sound bath or something and, and it was just unreal. It was unreal that I got to hear these songs and sing them a lot. I mean, it, I think that is like in my DNA for the rest of my life. So even if I saw better concerts since then or cooler things, it's like, that's in my DNA. Um, also, the um, I think 
when I was a teenager in college and I went to see Nirvana. I mean, I don't know if it's the best music they've ever played or the most interesting band I've ever seen, but I was in the fucking room with Nirvana three months before Kurt Cobain died. Like I, looking back on it, that makes it one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen because it was one of the last concerts they did. It was definitely the last concert they ever played in Massachusetts. And I saw Kurt Cobain. I heard him talking. I was like near him when he was talking. Like that's insane to me. That's insane to me. You know, and he was um, stopping uh, these jocks from like groping women in the audience and like wouldn't play until they fucking stopped. And he was making jokes when people would throw things at him like for fun. And he was um, profusely apologizing to the breeders who were his opening act who are amazing. And I've seen them since then a bunch by saying we don't deserve this. They're better than us. You fucking stupid people. You should have made the breeders famous, not us. I mean, that I'll never forget that. I've seen a billion concerts since then. And I just, it's its because of the age I was and how special it was, you know, because based on like the, the cultural context at the time of, of hearing men talk like that on behalf of women and then just knowing like what I didn't know then is that he won't be around in three months. Unreal, right? Hey, everyone. Okay, that concert exists. Like that Nirvana concert that I just mentioned in the last email. Okay, it's I'm busting in. It's Jen. This is um a few hours after I recorded this episode and I I'm going to edit this in as a little um maybe I'm the only one that's excited about this. So, um what you kids have to understand is and and I have to understand it too because I live in a um digital world now where I can just record things at a concert and I can just hear you know, if I want to go see a concert right now, I can hold my phone up and, but, but to have been s- somewhere almost 30 years ago and to be like, I remember him saying this thing. You know how our memories sometimes play tricks on us. I went on YouTube and looked up Nirvana 1993 at Fitchburg Stadium. <laughs> and, the whole concert is there and it's, it's not even terrible audio. Like it wasn't, but there was no phones then there was no cell phone. There was no internet. There would, uh, someone must've, I don't know, brought some kind of tape recording thing. It seems they were side stage. The people who taped this, I, I don't know, but I just got so excited because I mean, I can watch a clip of Kurt Cobain on YouTube anytime I want, but this was like, I was there hearing it with my ears And there is something so powerful about like, I looked a few years ago, I think I looked back on the 90s, like it wasn't that sexist. And then now that I see what a shit show everything still is, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't realize how bad it was. And it is a big deal for like an arena rock rock band to be playing and to stop the show to yell at the dudes. And so this is Kurt and Chris doing that. And then I'm going to play you another thing, which is Kurt. Um, uh talking about, you know, how he's disappointed in his audience and all this. So hang on one second. Um, this, I, I don't know, maybe no one relates to how exciting this is, but kids out there who've never had to not, not to just have had to live in the moment and 30 years later, like someone recorded it. it it's the, it's unbelievably thrilling to find that out. So hang on one second. Um, where is that moment? Sorry, I'm I'm trying to get this all. I am such a nerd. This isn't actually what a nerd does. This is cool. I'm cool. All right, hang on one sec. Let me get this moment. All right, hang on. 
This is um, Chris yelling, and then Kurt is the one with the lower voice talking. Hang on. You're probably like, what? It's just like Chris yelling, you fucking asshole. You grabbed that girl. And Kurt's going, we hired some goons out back who beat the shit out of you. And I watched those guys get taken out back. <laughs> like they were taken away and everyone cheered. And then they went into all apologies. Like no one stood up for women like that. You think you got time when you're playing a stadium to notice dudes in the audience? And then they played a song. And then Kurt um, talked to the audience about like, that he was scared of having a shitty audience. So, again, it's not like the most profound thing, but... Ah! What's happening? Sorry. Hold. Oh, my God. Hang on. was that we were really concerned with the type of audience that we would attract. And for the most part, I would say 98% of the people are really, you know, respectful and, and, and good. And I really appreciate everyone coming. It's been really great. But there's always that small amount of people who grope girls, you know, kiss them in the asses, throw shoes, smack people in the head. And I... In the interviews, I imagine they translated into us whining, bitching, and complaining. So that's what we're known for. That's all we're trying to do is protect people. All we're trying to do is protect people. I mean, that shaped me, man, is just watching someone go off on their audience and be like, no. Oh, my God. And then he's going off at people. He's like, why don't you guys own my first album? Everyone gets ACDC's backlog. I just thought that was so funny that he's still complaining. I mean, as he should. This is why I'm always yelling, why don't you buy my books, buy my albums? I guess I was taught. I guess in that moment, comedian me, who wasn't a comedian yet, was just absorbed everything Kurt Cobain said. It was like... One day I will yell at an audience because they're assholes who are sexist and I will admonish them for not having my entire work catalog. Oh, God bless. Anyway, back to the episode. Or oh, wait, wait, almost back. Hang on. Now I have to turn off this thing I'm recording. Back, back to the episode. Anyway, uh, Jen, just wanted to drop an email about two things that have no right to annoy me as much as they do. First is when I see men wearing flip-flops with sweatpants. I won't get into the general grossness of men wearing sandals in non-beach or pool settings. Uh, for anyone who is tensing their butthole right now listening to this and getting all, not all men, a man wrote this. So let's just do a test for the men out there who are like, no more man bashing. If anyone felt that way, let's take a moment. Really dig deep. 
Did you feel like you didn't want to hear another woman complaining about men? Now, knowing a man wrote it, see if you feel differently when you hear me read it. And it's just a personal test for you. And feel free to email me, iSeemFun at Gmail, and admit if that happened, and I'll be nice to you. Hi, Jen. Just wanted to drop an email about two things that have no right to annoy me as much as they do. First is when I see men wearing flip-flops with sweatpants. I won't get into the general grossness of men wearing sandals in non-beach or pool settings, but seriously, your feet are covered in pee and just other gross things, dude. Just the look of flip-flops and sweatpants makes me openly cringe and say, really? The second is YouTube video thumbnails, particularly reaction videos. Those overly exaggerated expressions just make me audibly sigh. The worst are those Joe Rogan reacts to thumbnails for his podcast videos where he tries to furrow his brow and look deep. But in reality, it just looks like he's trying to do the math of figuring out a 3% tip on a $285 bill in his head. Thanks for all the great content. Have a great and safe day, John. Thank you, John. Um, I know that last. Uh, I I know that I think I know what a YouTube. I don't really do. I don't spend a lot of time on YouTube, and so I don't really know about the reaction videos. I do know that I see them. I'm not on TikTok, but I see a lot of people post on Twitter those TikTok videos where people are watching something for the first time and reacting. And I admit I'm old and I get confused. I'm like, wait, which is the video I'm supposed to be watching? What's happening? I mean, I get them now. And I know this isn't the same as a reaction video, but there there are these two kids. I don't know how old they are. I don't know how old people are. They could be 10 or 14. These two, I think they're brothers. Um, They might actually just be friends. I don't know, but these two guys and they're in, and they're young and they're in their home and they're listening to songs for the first time and reacting. And there's another guy that does this too. There was a guy that was listening to, oh fuck, what was it? Anyway, but these guys listened to Phil Collins in the air tonight. And it, it was fun to watch because I think it's a little different than the other reaction videos because we don't, like we, we're, we're not in on it the whole time either. So, but me, I've known that song forever. And so I see someone who's 10 to 14, not knowing how music sounded in the 80s and and they hear that drum solo for the first time and it's so cute the way they react and so I like stuff like that but um fuck what was the, there was like the original reaction video where this guy was listening to a song for the first time and I can't remember what song it was that's a great story Jen do you have any more things that you don't remember that you still want to tell us you don't remember because I think it's going to come to me as I'm saying it and it doesn't it just doesn't Jen, because I love listening to you riff on whatever is on your mind, I don't have a question or a topic to suggest. All I want to say is thank you for pointing me in the direction of Call My Agent. All caps. I know you didn't recommend it, but you've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast, so I decided to check it out on Friday night, and I love it. It's also soothing a serious case of wonderlust. Can't wait to travel to Paris again. I received my first Moderna shot on Tuesday. Moderna. I don't know why I say, I don't know what I'm saying. And, I'm, and it improved my mood and outlook on life almost immediately. So now I'm practically out of my skin, hoping to be able to plan a trip to Europe. Thanks again for the Patreon. Um, I hope you're able to visit your family soon. Elena, you can read this on air. 
um, I th- it is funny that she put in all caps. I know you didn't recommend it. I'm just big against being recommended things. It drives me crazy. It's just my own personal thing. Because so I so I'm shouting into the wind. I don't know who is listening. I don't know any of you, even the ones of you that email me. I'm not. I'm just saying in general. Hey, I like this thing. So if if it, if it, I'm not trying to get anyone to watch it, I'm just saying. You might relate by going, well, I don't like that thing, but I relate to how it feels to like something. I'm still interested in hearing Jen talk about this. I'm not starting with you should. I'm not saying if you like this podcast, you may like this. I'm really not. I'm just telling you what I like. And that's that's how I say to advertise this podcast. Like, don't tell people what they should do. Or if you like this, like I've had a bunch of people write me like, if you like, call my agent, you might like this. And I never like the other things. It's just like things happen and I love when I find something and it just connects with me. And I'm, it's, it's, I'm hesitant when I'm told you should. Um, and so I don't feel like I'm recommending things when I say, and that's why I'm always yelling, I'm not recommending it. I'm just telling you what I like because this podcast is about me and my life. And if you hear it and it makes you want to check it out, amazing. It's not like I'm getting a commission for it. But but the difference between me saying it on a podcast is I'm just talking in a performative way to the wind, but I'm not addressing someone directly and saying you would or you should. Oh, why does that annoy me so much? Does anyone else feel that way? I seem fun at gmail.com. Jen, your don't make me episode. Oh, that was a few episodes ago where I was like, I don't want to go back into the world. Holy crap, this is everything I'm feeling. I'm not ready. We're all not ready. Except my friends posting pictures from their vacation. You don't live together. Why are you vacationing together? Why are you vacationing at all? It's still a pandemic, you numb nuts. Only I'm even more far behind because I haven't figured out what I'm leaving behind and what I'm not. Why can't I decipher this? There's been plenty of time. I want to resurface new and unencumbered when things reopen. Instead, I feel I'll emerge awkward and afraid to hug and it'll all just be cringeworthy. And to top it off, that feeling of others moving ahead and you're not and it's not fair. The biggest a-hole I know, I just learned he has an off-Broadway opportunity. Insert me on the floor, kicking and screaming like a toddler that it isn't fair. Yep, your September 18th, 2001 feeling it resonates. Thanks for being so real. It helps those of us who have the same feelings and haven't managed to verbalize them. Have I mentioned that guy's a complete a-hole? Jenny. Yeah, well, here's the thing, Jenny. You want to resurface new and unencumbered when things reopen. But again, let's just say that's my brain coming up with the best idea it knows how. My brain sometimes doesn't have any good ideas. My brain works much better when I experience something and then process it. So let yourself emerge awkward and afraid to hug because what you'll notice is that other people will feel the same way. You'll be bonded to humanity in a new way. We're all going through this for the first time. And I would argue that you haven't had plenty of time to get used to this. It's been a year and you haven't had a year of practicing reemerging into society. You've only had a year of practicing retreating from society. That's why you're so good at it. So now you're going to need another year, maybe, maybe less, to emerge awkward and afraid to hug. Embrace it. Embrace it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
okay, Jen, the pandemic made me realize I might be an introvert, but I'm a social introvert. When you were reading about that a couple of weeks ago, I knew exactly what you were talking about because I too claim this social introvert status. I was good for the first half of my three-month stay-at-home order. My family kept saying they were worried about me, and I was asking why. This is how I live all the time. So to hear you talk about that was a breath of fresh air. Anyway, in the middle of the pandemic, I got out of a toxic relationship I'd been in for eight years. Eight, Jen, and I got out. And by got out, I mean I told him exactly what I wanted, what I wouldn't put up with anymore, and then he just avoided the conversation altogether. All he said was that I was right, and he understood. And I haven't heard from him since last July. Now that I've been healing from that, I look around and see how lonely I've actually been. I went through this pandemic mostly on my own. I didn't have friends I could call up to chat because I just didn't have friends anymore. I do have some family in my area, of course, but friendships were zilch. I've been telling myself for years that people suck, that they steal my energy, and I don't want to be out doing anything because the recovery of talking to people would take days for me. But really, I think that the people around were just energy suckers, and I wouldn't give some others a chance because of my toxic relationship. I've been in therapy since last June, which has helped give me more confidence. I actually enjoy talking with strangers since the pandemic. My question for you is, do you have any advice to give on how to make friendships again, or any thoughts on making friends during a pandemic in part of the country that's mostly red? Although Michigan flipped blue, I'm on the red side. I'm not into my coworkers as they are mostly anti-maskers or have small children and no time for friends. I want to meet people in their 30s who are child-free, feminist, forward-thinking, liberal-leaning. I just keep thinking to myself, I don't want to go through something like that alone again. What are your thoughts, Kirkman? Well, you know, this is a great question. I'm really glad you're in therapy because anytime we're like, I hate people, I hate this, it's, it's really a defense mechanism. We're protecting ourselves. And I do think there's something to be said for admitting one thing, two things. One, it's never just us against them. It's never they're all bad and I'm great and why can't I find my people, right? So that part you're probably taking care of in therapy. The other part that you said is maybe just these people were energy suckers, which is 100% possible as well. You know, it's like if everyone you run into is a problem, then eventually the, the problem is you, right? But that that can happen when you're in a toxic relationship or in a relationship where that person um, is your only world, even if it's a otherwise, quote, healthy relationship, you know, anytime a relationship where that person is our world, we, we need more practice, like bringing problems to friends or having fun with other people. And I'm really lucky because I live, you know, listen, I mean, I guess I don't think enough about how lucky I am that I mostly get to live in you know, my politics are liberal and I've lived in places that align with that. Now, I've still met plenty of people who aren't, but it's not only that and my only choice. Where I feel a little alienated, I was kind of talking about this with my therapist. I said, I feel like a woman without a um, without a total flock of her people. I have to find things in you know, I don't have anyone else who is literally in my same exact position. Like, I don't really want to live in America. I'm kind of overdoing stand-up. You know, I a lot of the things I want, I can't, you can't actually just not live in America. Like, I have to work a job and like the jobs I work are writing. You know, it's just like, there's a lot of things that I'm kind of longing for that can't change. So during the pandemic, I got closer to friends that were willing to actually shelter in place. The people that like talking on the phone, the people that like Zoom drinks. I got closer to them. 
Now, I have some friends who met guys at the beginning of the pandemic and they made that guy their world. And I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I thought I, I found that kind of strange that like, but I guess it's like, hey, it's a new experience for all of us. Like, who says we have to go through it with our friends? You know, whatever. So, so I'm, I'm just kind of in this no man's land right now where I don't have anyone who is like exactly the same life as me. But there's been periods in my life where I've had that luxury. And I think that might be something that only happens when we're super young. So in, what I'm trying to say is I've always had the community I've needed because in stand up, it's like you go out every night, you practice stand up, you meet friends. Those are your people. You know, I've been lucky that work friends have been people I've related to and they've become some of my closest friends. Where to meet people when you live in a red state? I have zero experience with that. Zero. So I'm going to ask my listeners, I seem fun at gmail.com. The only thing I can think of is this like cheesy thing that like sounds like something that someone who doesn't know dick about squat would say, which is, is there any kind of online community? Like, is there a bookstore can you how far are you from the more blue side of things like are you willing to add a 20 minute drive into your social schedule can you take a whatever kind of workout class you like taking on the more blue side or is it really are you really that far apart can you um is there like a bookstore is there any haven i remember um i know roseanne ended up being kind of a kookadooks and offending many people and all that but you got to remember before all that uh before anyone knew all that in the 80s she wrote a great um, memoir. And in the 90s, I read it as someone who really wanted to be a comedian. And she was in, you know, she didn't posit it as red state, blue state. That wasn't quite the way we contextualize things then. But she was a, um, a housewife who had things to say. And the comedy scene was very sexist. And the only place she found that would accept her was this lesbian bookstore even though she was straight, whatever. And they would have these open mic nights. Like we could just get on mic and talk, you know, what poetry or whatever. And she did her stand up there in this. Well, so, I mean, is there that version of that in your, in your town? I know you're not looking to perform, but like, is there just somewhere that has something? I mean, it, it's hard to make friends, you know, not everyone we meet is going to end up being a friend, but you know, is there somewhere? I, I don't know. Is there something online? Is there a um, like a Facebook group or something? A Reddit thread? I don't know. I mean, I really don't. I mean, the only thing that I could think of is like, I truly don't like any area of your life. If it's if it is politics, is there like envelope stuffing, like postcard writing? Is there any kind of? There's got to be people like you in your area. How to find them? I, I honestly don't know. And, the, and and maybe someone who has more experience with this can weigh in because I I love your willingness though. And I think that just the willingness that's there is um is really great. And I would talk about this to everyone you can talk about it with. Talk, I mean, I'm sure you already do, but if just in case it hadn't dawned on you, like say this out loud to as many people you can, you know, uh, and just start really at the very least you know, whenever I kind of don't know where to turn and I'm investigating how do I find what I'm looking for, I do start with, and I'm sorry to say it, I'm not trying to talk hooey, like the secret or stuff like that, but I do try to align like my attitude and energy to come from a place of curiosity and wonder and excitement. Okay, now that I know what I want, I'm out of this toxic relationship, right? I want friends. 
I'm so excited about who I'm going to meet and who wasn't available to me before because I was closed down and have my blinders on with this relationship. You know, get into that energy of it's coming instead of it's lacking. At the very least, I'm not saying you can control your destiny by having this energy shield around you, but it'll make you happier and feel better. And when we have that kind of energy and attitude, we actually do, I think, end up becoming attractive to others on you know many levels, on a spiritual level, all this. I really think it just, at the very least, if you can't find your people for a while, you won't be miserable doing it. You know, it has to become an adventure. And as I just said that, I kind of solved my own problem that I was talking about in therapy last week about this crossroads I feel like I'm at in life. I need to look at it as my next adventure and not I'm stuck, where are my people? So thank you, because you got my wheels turning. Um, this episode is turning out to be longer than I thought because your questions were so insightful. I don't think we're going to get to all of them in this episode. Some of these are long as fuck. So let me keep going. Jen, this past year has ruined a lot of birthday plans, but if anyone's in need of some perspective... I'll be spending my 30th birthday doing the least fun activity of my or anyone's life, chemotherapy. But I was listening to an episode from November where someone talked about listening to the podcast at bedtime, and I realized it would be apropos and probably comforting to have no fun in my ears during my upcoming infusion. The thing takes six hours, and the usual alternative therapies, massage, Reiki, whatever, aren't available right now because of COVID. So instead, I just spend the whole time falling in and out of drugged up sleep as they administer the poisons. I actually started listening five or six years ago around the time I got my first diagnosis. So while this is the least fun email, you remain a small comfort accompanying me on this unpleasant ride. By the way, you know how people make cancer survivorship sound like it shifts your perspective on life into each day is a blessing and no small annoyance shall ever blight my mood? Yeah, no. I very much want to continue being alive, but also the same stupid shit continues to annoy me as much as it ever did. Will I ever be able to accept gracefully accept a coworker wishing me a happy Friday or God help me a happy Monday? Doubtful. Okay. Don't know what's taken me so long. Probably cancer, but I'm going to sign up for the Patreon now. All the best. Jesse. Oh, thanks, Jesse. Um... Yeah, the Patreon will give you lots of extra stuff to listen to during chemo. And and I love this. And you say this is the least fun email. This is one of my favorites. I love when people write to me about this. And I know it helps other people to hear this. And I know it helps me. It's so, um, I don't know. I mean, it's dumb. But I listened to Hugh Grant on Mark Maron's podcast when I was getting my root canal. And I remember the dentist saying to me, now you should really listen to music while I'm administering the, um, what do you call it? Nitrous. Because if your brain is too active, it's going to prevent the nitrous from really working. And she said, I wouldn't listen to podcasts if I were you. And I, I put on some music just to, okay, fine. And I found it, I didn't like it. I didn't want to feel trippy and spacey. And I hadn't really thought in advance about what music I'd listen to. And I put on some, you know, Beatles and then I put on some classical and I just went, I I actually really want to hear Mark talk to Hugh about his life and acting because I'm such a giant Hugh, Hugh Grant fan. Huge. No pun intended. He's a real, I just, 
God, I love his acting. And I want I wanted to hear exactly everything I heard on that podcast. I want to hear his charm, his humor. I wanted to know about his acting process, which up until lately, he really hasn't had one. I wanted to hear Mark. I knew Mark would ask him about that stuff. And so I switched to that and it was so comforting. And that's when I really felt the most relaxed. So, you know, it's like the fact that I can be that for you while you're, again, I'm not comparing a root canal to chemo, please. I know. Um, I hope that was not offensive, but I just know what you mean where I was in a situation that was medical and that, you know, wasn't pleasant. And for me, talking is what I want to hear. I just want to hear people going about their things and, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, ugh, it's tough. I, I, I don't know what my point is, but, um, we have to find our things that work for us. And I, I'm always speechless that I am that to someone. Now, I also know that I cannot account for what things I listen to when I need someone there. And it doesn't mean it's the greatest thing on earth. So I don't take it overly as a compliment. I just, it's cool. Cause I understand that feeling where you're like this, I just need this on right now, this, this. And that to me is the greatest compliment more than you're funny, more than whatever. So there you go. Thank you. And I hope that the poison um, poisons all the cancer as it will. And I hope you don't have too many side effects. I hope everything is easy for you. I hope the cancer doesn't come back. I hope all of that. And yes, I hate the fucking warrior language as well. I feel like it puts so much pressure on people. I feel like it gives this, like, so what did the people who died of cancer do? Did they not fight hard enough? She lost her battle with cancer. No, actually, she didn't lose her battle with cancer. She wasn't battling cancer. I, I There's a better way to put it. Because we're all mortal. We're all going to go. And honestly, like, I don't know. I don't want to get into it. I just, that kind of stuff, I just think puts undue pressure on people. Jen, I hope this isn't reaching you too late for your podcast. I just saw the Twitter post. This got in under the wire. And this will be the last email I read. Jen, I'm a first-year medical student who is having some doubts about continuing. My passion is art, and not to brag, but I'm pretty good. I personally illustrated a published series of children's books from the ages 8 to 12 and have been drawing since I was 2. I'm trying to decide between just doing art or continuing with med school. The reason my decision is urgent is because I'm about three months in about three months, the block will be over, and I'll have to decide to go another year and take on another $70,000 in loans. I do find medicine interesting, and I like interacting with people, but I don't know if I'd want to do it for the rest of my life. I would much rather sit at home and paint or draw all day. I have a few commissions I'm slowly working through now, and many more I've refused to accept because I haven't had time with school. I mean, I already know the answer here, people. I've managed to save some of my loan money, and I'm getting my stimulus with my tax refund so I'll have enough for about five months saved up. I could really focus on my art and pick up some part-time work. Just wondering if I'll regret leaving school. Part of me feels that since I've worked so long and so hard for it, I should just continue. Nah. But another part of me is wondering if I'll be putting seven years of intense training and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt in for something I don't really want. Basically, what would I do? What would you do? Thanks. I seem funner since 2015. Anonymous. What I would do, as you can see, is not go to med school. 
Now, I've followed my heart sometimes and I've made some rash decisions and I've regretted it. And you know what's amazing? I've gotten to go back to the jobs that I've quit. Doesn't always happen. But like medical school doesn't go, oh, you were here, you can't come back in. I mean, maybe it does. It doesn't matter. Being afraid to do something because you might regret it. It's like you got to have this unstoppable feeling of like, look, if I don't go to meds, if I stop doing med school, you haven't given me one reason you like it. It sounds like it's a sort of a safety for you, but with that kind of student debt, when is it ever going to be a safety job? Does that make sense? Like if you were learning a trade skill that didn't put you in debt, like if you were learning carpentry and you're like, look, I hate carpentry, but I'm pretty good at, you know, it's okay. Um, But I can make good money doing it Um, while I, you know, explore my love of cooking. That's really what I want to do. I'd say, okay, learn that trade. Yeah, you need a safety. But I don't think medicals, being a doctor is any kind of safety job at this point in life with all that debt. And actually, I think this is kind of a miracle you asked me this because I'm reading a book right now called You Should Really Talk to Someone. And I've had it in my Kindle for two years. And the other day, I just was called to read it. And it's this therapist who used to be a TV executive. I didn't know anything about this book when I bought it. And she worked on like Friends and ER. And she first worked in movies, didn't like it, then moved over to TV then started working on ER, then started going to actual emergency rooms a lot to bone up on terms and things she needed to know to, you know, basically be a high level um, writer executive at ER. And she fell so in love with being in the ER that people were like, dude, you should go to medical school. She went to medical school and dropped out halfway because she realized, okay, okay, I'm sort of piecing together what I want in my life. I love human stories. I love medical things. But I don't want to work in TV and I don't exactly want to be sitting here. She she really put it this certain way that after medical school is over, becoming a doctor is a lot about writing up insurance paperwork. And that this fantasy of what we think it is, is not it. And she left <clears throat> to uh, <coughs> obviously change her field and become a therapist. So, And she was in her late 30s. And she really wanted a kid. And everything just seemed to be a huge time crunch for her. So this notion that, will I have wasted the years I already did? No. That time is gone. So even if you did what you were supposed to do, quote, there's no wasted. It's just the time you lived those years. And you were pursuing something you didn't want to pursue. And it took doing it to find out. So how is that wasted? It brought you more sure of where you want to be right now. Nothing's ever wasted. Just don't even look at it that way because it just adds extra anxiety into your psyche and your body. You can do a billion part-time jobs, and if you are getting commission on your art, you know, great. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. I am, you know, it's really scary. And I need a lot more money than I've got to be really safe for the year. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. Um, and so, yeah, it, I hear you, dude. Um, but I think you should stop going to medical school. And again, I'm just a comedian with a podcast. But just make sure when you're making a big decision, uh, just just try to pinpoint any of the small F fantasies you might be having about anything. When you think about what you might like about being a doctor, you know, make a list called what it's really going to be like, what I just vaguely think of when I think of it. It's almost like a pro and cons list. So like this woman said, it's a lot of like paperwork for insurance. Do you love being a doctor enough to put up with that? For me, with being a comedian, it's traveling. Do you love it enough to put up with the travel? Yes. 
Do you love it enough to put up with not knowing if you're going to sell tickets and people are coming to the show? Uh, I used to actually. I don't lately. Oh, okay. That's a new information, right? Like you're going to keep changing. So don't be like, why didn't I do this sooner? Because the you who you were earlier didn't want to do it the way you're thinking of doing it now. This is all new. You're becoming the new version of you. And so here you go. You know, jump on in. If you love something so much that you're willing to kind of go into the unknown with it, I mean, to me, that sounds like a calling, you know, but we got to be careful. Our callings don't always mean we get what we want. And that can be really painful, but that's why we got to love the thing we're doing. So that's why for me, putting a pause on standup was really important because it wasn't lining up. And the reality of it was affecting the calling feeling. And I feel called right now to do podcasting stuff. And so I'm doing it. You know, and maybe there is there a world where the medical and the art can be in conjunction. You know, maybe you end up the part of medical school that appealed to you, you know, interacting and helping people. I don't fucking know. Maybe you'll get commissioned to do art on um, a children's ward wall or something. You know, I mean, it's just like, who knows? Who knows how how being at one time in the medical industry or pursuing a medical degree could inform your art? And uh, it's not either or, you know, I just think those those debts don't sound worth it to me unless you're going into debt for a thing that's really going to be something worth going into debt for. And again, you know, I know we shouldn't have student debt and all that. That's different discussion. But um, yeah, that's what I think. Now, again, anyone out there who has life experience making a big kind of switch like that, because I've always kind of been more the... I just go with it, you know, kind of person. And believe me, it's a scary life. Um, I seem fun at gmail.com. Send me your emails and let me know. And, and I'll read them on air next week. Wow, I have so many more. Okay, good, good, good. Well, I love it. Um, okay, one more. Jen, I'm possibly this. Uh, I'm sending you a fond hello. Sorry. I'm a longtime fan. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, sorry. This is important because it relates to last week's episode. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm going to end on this one. The other one I'll do next week. Okay. This is from Jeff. Jeff is a regular listener to the podcast. And uh, Jeff wrote a book about that uh, had to do with alcohol. Sorry, I'm forgetting the name of your book right now. So that's why I'm um, blanking. But is it called Drink Like a Geek? I think it might be. Anyway, because I talked about wine in space last week, Jeff sent me some of the research that he had done. I'm assuming it had to do with his last book, but it didn't end up in the book or something like that. But Jen, if it's not too late for the all listener email episode, I wanted to follow up on the wine in space story from the last episode. It got me thinking about some research I did a few years ago about the history and future of alcohol in space. And I wanted to share a few more interesting factoids about extraterrestrial imbibing. Stop me if you think you've heard this one before. Um, I read the whole email before I'm reading it to you guys, and I had not heard of any of this. When the U.S. space program was in its infancy and we had yet to send a human into space, the soon-to-be astronauts were known to be quite the lushes. They would usually end their workday by drinking till dawn at the Happy Bottom Riding Club in the Mojave Desert because it was close to Edwards Air Force where they were training for space. So in all likelihood, most of the Mercury and Apollo astronauts were hungover 
probably every day. Oh my God, I cannot, I can't even podcast if I'm hungover. I can't even get, the worst feelings I've ever had are when I have to get on an airplane hungover. Oh my God, the dehydration. Can you imagine hungover in space or space training? I cannot, I cannot. Officially, NASA does not allow alcohol on space missions. However, that's never stopped astronauts from smuggling some booze with them. Buzz Aldrin famously gave himself communion, including wine, on board the lunar module when he and Armstrong landed. By the way, everybody, Buzz Aldrin, very public um, alcoholic and now member of AA, um, you can actually find some of the talks he's given in AA meetings about his life and struggle with sobriety. And I've listened to them. They're fascinating. Um, when he talks about like just the reckless alcoholism he was experiencing while being an astronaut, wild. Not not stories like I was drunk in the ship, but just like in his in his years leading up to that and the womanizing and the whole thing. Buzz got real edge to him. That's why I remember that time he punched that guy out for being like the moon landing's not real. Like he's sober now, Buzz, but he's got that edge. You know, he just fucking hauled off and punched the guy. Anyway, okay. Um, Seven months before that, when Apollo 8 was orbiting the moon, the astronauts, including James Lovell, who'd later be on the infamous Apollo 13 mission, brought bottles of brandy with them to toast with the moment they became the first humans to orbit the moon. However, the mission's commander, Frank Borman, was a total buzzkill and wouldn't let them up with the bottle. Oh, wouldn't let them open the bottles. Lovell ended up auctioning off one of the bottles years later. Remember Skylab? When that was orbiting the Earth in the 1970s, the astronauts were going to be allowed to bring Sherry with them. But when the pearl-clutching public learned this, there was serious backlash and the permission was rescinded. Come on! let the, They're in space! Let them have a nip. My God, I can't imagine getting on a plane without an emergency clonopin. In 2012, Stoli did a marketing stunt where they sent a mixologist to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere to see to, to see what it was like making a cocktail in zero gravity. And one last thing, as commercial space travel becomes a thing for the insanely wealthy, at least, there will very likely be alcohol allowed on orbital flights pretty much for the same reason that they've allowed it on planes since the early days of flight, to keep people from freaking the fuck out. But if anyone's expecting to pop a cork on some champagne to celebrate the first time they leave the Earth's atmosphere, they'd better reevaluate their plans. That's because you can't burp in space. I never knew that. Burping requires gravity. Oh my God, I never knew that. In space, the gassy liquids will just form this blob that will just sit in your stomach and make you extremely uncomfortable. Obviously, the same goes for beer or anything else carbonated. Cheers for many light years, Jeff. Craziness. Craziness. Anyway, I've got so many more emails to read. I love you guys. Thanks for writing in. Um, next week, I'll hopefully, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. Why, why am I apologizing for this episode? I loved this episode. I'm not going to apologize. Do the men apologize for their podcast? No, they do not. Hey, by the way, I just want to let you guys know, thank you, everyone who shopped my merchandise store. I was able... Um, I haven't done it yet, actually, but I'm, by the time you hear this, it will have been done. Going to be sending almost $500, about $480 each, I think, to a food bank in Mississippi and one in Oklahoma. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Keep shopping in my merchandise store. Um, I haven't announced yet what the uh, food banks will be for the month of April, but um, by the time this episode comes out, it will be in the show notes. So click the show notes, shop my merchandise. You can get so many fun things. Um, mugs, t-shirts, pins, 
hoodies, pillows, notebooks, travel mugs, and they all say things that are either from my act or from this podcast like, Girls, women are literally humans. Girls will be girls, feminist and fun, anxious and fun. I'm just a soul trapped in a body. I meditated today, motherfucker. Rich bitch. Uh, picture my sister's cat sitting in some hay if you like tuxedo cats. And it says, hey, girl, get it? Uh, oh, God, so many other things. Um, and then just, you know, ones that are the logo of the show. If you want to drink out of a mug and look at my face every morning, why wouldn't you, you weirdos? Anyway, click the link in the show notes or go to jenkirkman.com and click shop. I would love for you guys to keep it going. I'm loving that I get to donate like at least $10,000 a year to food banks. This is what we're doing this year. And so far, it's been a banger and a winner. I don't know what I'm talking about now. It's just getting awkward. Why can I never end the show without it being too much talking? Okay, until next week, have fun. Have fun. 